I'm here today with Reverend Jennifer Bailey. Jennifer is the author of a new book titled To My Beloveds, Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope, published by Chalice Press. Named one of 15 faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress, Jennifer is an ordained minister, public theologian, and national leader in the multi-faith movement for justice. She's the founder and executive director of the Faith Matters Network, a womanist-led organization equipping community organizers, faith leaders, and activists with resources for connection, spiritual sustainability, and accompaniment. Jennifer is also the co-founder of the People's Supper, which was featured in our recent book, How to Heal Our Divides. Since January 2017, the People's Supper has hosted over 2,000 suppers in 150 communities nationwide, focusing on bringing people together to engage constructively on issues affecting their communities. Jennifer is Ashoka Fellow, Aspen Idea Scholar, On Being Fellow, and Truman Scholar. She earned degrees from Tufts University and Vanderbilt University Divinity School, where she was awarded the Wilbur F. Tillett Prize for accomplishments in the study of theology. Jennifer spoken at the inaugural Obama Foundation Summer, Makers, TEDx Scroll, and the White House. Her work has been featured on On Being with Krista Tippett, CBS This Morning, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and dozens of other publications. You can learn more about Jennifer at reverendjen.com. So, Jennifer, it's really an honor and a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you so much for having me. We've done some incredibly interesting work. So, I mean, before we get into um, the books, can you tell us more about your background and how you got involved in so many wonderful endeavors? Yeah, well, I have the, the great privilege of being a person who has found myself um, coming of age in many edge spaces. So I grew up both in a small town in West Central Illinois and on the South side of Chicago. <laughs> I grew up, um, you know, in, in spaces in a pretty um, deep, rich Black church tradition in the AME church, but was encountered at a very young age and shaped by the faith traditions of friends who were Jewish and Muslim and Baha'i. And so I think for me, part of my vocational call from a young age has been to stand in these spaces on the edges and really think about embodying what healing across difference can look like. Um, I don't know that I would have said that at like 12 or 18 or 25, <laughs> but now that I'm in, in my 30s, I can see a direct sort of pathway um, from my experiences as a young person to um, the vocational pathway that I found myself pursuing today. And it really does feel to me like calling. It feels like an extension of my ministry and a very, I feel really grateful a deep gift to be in these spaces. I know not everybody feels that way <laughs> about bridging spaces in these times. We're encountering um, folks across lines of difference, but but for me, it really does feel like a gift. That's that's really cool, and you know, I, I think having a diversity of background, you know, is good for us all, right? I mean, to have different, you know, faith interactions and you know, social and economic and ethnic and you know, every other dimension. So. That's good that you have that perspective and you've leveraged it. So, <laughs> I um, I live it. I mean, I live in um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm here in the South. I'm in a, a multi faith interracial marriage. My husband's Jewish, <laughs> and so it's it's a daily part of my life. <clears throat> so, um, tell us more about Faith Matters Network that you lead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I. Um, 
have the great honor to be a part of a community at Faith Matters Network of powerful, transformative leaders. Um, we are a womanist-led organization, and for folks who aren't familiar with the term womanism, womanism is um, really a school of theology and way of being and praxis. It's grounded in the lineage and tradition and experiences of Black women. And so most of our, our work emerges out of a tradition um, that upholds, you know, famous Black uh, theologians and ethicists like Katie Cannon and Emily Towns, um, folks like Bell Hooks, May She Rest in Power, and others who really shaped and formed for us um, a pathway that centers um, radical hope, that centers human dignity. I have a mentor who says that Black women have never had a vision of liberation that wasn't inclusive of everyone, and I think that's true. So our work at Faith Matters Network really focuses on healing the healers, so we work alongside faith leaders, community organizers, and activists who are on the front lines of many of the social justice struggles of our day, whether that be questions around immigration reform, big questions about being and belonging um, in this time, racial justice issues. And so our work is to come alongside and accompany those leaders in their own formation and development, while also training folks who feel a vocational pull and call to accompaniment in things like movement chaplaincy, which we are really grateful to be a part of an emerging ecosystem of projects and programs that are beginning to ground that new vocational identity, that of a movement chaplain. So we, we do a lot of work in our one of our latest um, bodies of work evolving from our work with the People's Supper um, was thinking with 50, over the course of two years, leading a learning journey with 50 pastors in North Carolina called Disciples of Welcome, which was really about equipping those pastors with tools to stand in the gap in radical hospitality in the time we were doing it in North Carolina, which was a swing state in the 2020 election, um, most of whom are serving rural populations who are on the front lines of some of these really difficult challenges around the future of our democracy. And so um, my dear colleague, Reverend Margaret Ernst, talks about it as democracy, a spiritual practice. And uh, so the piece uh. of our work that is very much thinking about and equipping leaders to, to think about what it means to be from a deep space of spirit and truth. Um, upholders of, of democracy and democratic practices. Mm, very cool. I mean, I cannot only imagine like during the pandemic, how things have been disrupted, you know, for the different programs that, that you've run, how, how have you been able to adapt? You know, we've been really fortunate. Um, we are a remote organization and <laughs> mostly in you know, millennials and Gen Z years, mostly, although we have some beloved Gen Xers and one baby boomer hanging out <laughs> with us as well. Um, and so we were able pretty quickly, actually, to adapt. Um, most of our programs have been taking place virtually and online. And while we really miss the experience of gathering with folks, I think we were well positioned to shift um, in 2020 when quarantine started and respond based on our own experience and um, our expertise in running virtual programs. Um, that being said, we really miss spending time together in person, <laughs> Ryan. We have staff members in Kansas City and in Philadelphia and Nashville um, and Memphis, so all over the country. And one of the great joys of our 
our community life together was being able to gather at least four times a year in person and be, be together and break bread together. Cool. Cool. So let's get into the book. Um, as I mentioned, the title of it is to my beloveds letters on faith, race, loss, and radical hope. So what motivated you to write that book? You know, this book was a long time coming. Um, it had taken on many, many different, um, forms over the years. And, um, I'm really grateful that it was a part of a series with um, one of my beloved um, formative institutions, the Forum for Theological Exploration. Um, and as is often the case with writers, <laughs> and there was a lot of stopping and starting. And in between that, you know, had my own share of life shifts from founding Faith Matters Network to accompanying my mother um, as she um, battled cancer and ultimately passed away in 2016. I got married, had a baby. <laughs> um, wow. And last thing, it was the it was the getting pregnant and um, not in. I did not anticipate when I found out I was pregnant in January 2020. <laughs> um, so much of uh, my my pregnancy would be spent in quarantine, um, and oh. that I would be giving birth to um, my beloved my beloved baby Max in the midst of a global pandemic, but it was, it was the experience of being pregnant during COVID and having sat deeply with personal loss, having lost my mother, um, lost several friends to suicide in my twenties, um, recently lost my grandmother. Uh, I, I knew the experience of what it was to live and alongside loss and death, loss in particular, um, and saw so many people grieving in 2020, whether that be, you know, the incalculable loss of life <laughs> that, um, and the impact of that, or, you know, the loss of a hope or of a dream or something that folks were anticipating. I think a lot about young people in the season who, um, anticipated a different experience for high school or college or, um, who missed out on proms and graduations. And it, it had a stirring in my spirit that there might be something that I could have to offer in this particular season <laughs> around this question of how do we tend to lot, how do we tend to our grief and loss? What can we learn out of a space of um, death and dying? And how can it help inform um, a sense of what I call in the book, radical hope? Um, and for me, that radical hope is really grounded in the wisdom and the beginning of the book starts with a vignette of my experience with church mothers. So these black women in their 60s, 70s and 80s who really helped shape and form me, women who um, growing up in my hometown of Quincy, Illinois, had escaped the Jim Crow South, who had seen some of the best and worst of what the world <laughs> could offer um, and who still despite it all, not only, as we say in my tradition, find a way out of no way, but held on to a deep sense of, of hope that was rooted and grounded um, and therefore radical <laughs> in my eyes. And so the book is really a, a series of letters around this topic of radical hope and um, centers three questions, three questions that I first heard on retreat, uh, a spiritual retreat for activists of color back in 2019 from a colleague of mine, Reiku, who asked in this group setting, um, what is dying? What wants to emerge? And what is already blooming beautifully in the world? 
And those three questions that Reiku posed in that that retreat have been a place of deep meditation for me. And so each of um, the sections of the book centers one of those three questions in this quest for radical hope. Hmm, hmm. Well, um, in reading the book, it was evident that your early church environment had a strong impact on your life going forward, and, and particularly the the African American women, right? You know that you know were around you. Can you tell us more about? you know, their influence on you at, at, you know, at that age of your life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I start the book by talking in particular about Sister Catherine Wilden, who um, was a high soprano in the choir. She always made delicious desserts. After <laughs> and who told my mother when I was around five or six years old that that girl's going to preach someday. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was recently with my my father over um, Christmas break, and he said, well, you know, you got it wrong in your book, because I talked to Sister Catherine when you were four, and she told me at a board So I lift her up. She passed away in February of last oh, year. Wow. If, if it was 92. Um, as just one example of this cohort of powerful women, many of whom um, did not take on formal religious leadership in the church, so weren't clergy, but who through their witness and example were the leaders of the church, right? Mm-hmm. Were the people who not just kept the, the lights on and the programs running, but who inhabited these deep spiritual gifts, this prophetic witness that I think is only possible in deep community. And so for me, I learned as much in the pews um, as I did in the church kitchen, hearing hearing those women not only reflect theologically, but also gossip. (laughs) I learned so much from them. And, you know, one of the great gifts of, you know, Sister Catherine and Sister Green and, um, Sister Watson, right? Because so I can think of like I have this image of these women, <laughs> is that they were imperfect vessels, and it reminded me that it was okay not to be perfect. Um, sometimes they were wrong, <laughs> like just <laughs> right. Um, they had some of them had rather like conservative views of gender and the role of women in the church. Obviously, not Sister Catherine who said I was going to preach, but you know. Um, and yet and still through their life and through their witness, through facing horrific circumstances, both structurally, structural barriers to um, career advancement, to abusive relationships, they still um, saw in their faith and saw in the gift of community that was the church, um, a space where radical transformation could happen, a space where um, the world might say one thing, but God says something else, right? And so being nurtured in that environment, particularly in a a social political moment in the 1990s, where we were beginning to talk about race in a a different way. And when in my own childhood, um, I grew up in a town that was 90% white and 10% all the rest of us. Um, And my church was really that refuge, um, having experienced some pretty direct bullying around my around my race in my school setting, it was the church that told me that not only was I beautiful, but that I was beloved in the eyesight of God, right? And um, it served as an important counterpoint to the narrative of what it was in my hometown to be a young Black girl. Mm -hmm. 
So the um, book cover describes the book as a collection of love letters of comfort, wisdom, encouragement, support, and hope for young activists and emerging faith leaders. So what are you hoping to convey to them? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Um, I think one of the the hopes for this book that I've been carrying is that um, folks would be able to pick it up and see a reflection of their own story, maybe not a direct correlation, um, and be reminded that they're not alone. Um, What we know um, demographically is that, particularly as I think about uh, Generation Z, these really powerful, amazing young folks who are coming up behind me is that we're dealing with an epidemic of loneliness that I think the pandemic has heightened. And we know that isolation and loneliness can lead to despair, depression, and a number of, of other, um, a number of other really tragic, both mental health difficulties and other things. And so, you know, my hope is that, um, is that, particularly young folks can pick this up and, and, and know that they themselves have a story that's worth telling and that there's somebody out there <laughs> who is also wrestling with some of those big questions that they might be wrestling with as well. And I think there's a secondary hope for me, which is so much of my own life experience has been shaped in intergenerational relationship. And just as we're facing an epidemic of loneliness, um, this is a time in human history that, especially in the United States, where we are more separated by generations than ever before. Um, and my my secondary hope or additional hope for this book is that it might serve as a conversation piece um, for folks who are older and younger to, to come together and maybe not agree on everything I write about in the book, but at least have a starting place for conversation. So speaking of which, you know, you're a relatively young African-American woman. I'm a relatively old white guy. <laughs> so what advice do you have for people like me <laughs> in, in terms of intergenerational conversations like this? Yeah, you know, I have, particularly over the last five years or so, felt this real deep desire to sit at the feet of elders and playground prophets. So like people who are younger than me and people that are older than me. And what I've learned in that process of relationship building and conversation is that um, it is important for us to recognize that we're all co-teachers and co-learners on the journey. And that um, it doesn't matter what year your your birth date ends on, that everybody has something to contribute and everybody has something to learn. And so being in that open posture of, of learning and teaching and knowing that speaking out of your own experience has deep fruits that other folks can learn from feels deeply important to me. Very cool. Very cool. (laughs) So um, what would be like the one thing that you would want people to take away from the book? Um, That there is hope. (laughs) And and that like the hope I talk about in the book is not like sort of this fluffy, um, loose, blind optimism, but that radical hope is a hope that is grounded in the lived reality that we have the power to transform the material conditions of the world in the here and now. Um, and that despite the, the tremendous obstacles that are before us, um, that history teaches us and experience teaches us that it is the power of everyday people to enact change in their communities um, 
that's how social change happens, right? It isn't often a pronouncement from a charismatic figure on high. <laughs> it's, although that is certainly sometimes part of how change happens, but it's often the daily toil and people identifying challenges in their communities and ways to make it better. And so that would be um, the message that I would want folks to take away from the book, that that there is radical hope and that you have the power to, to embrace it and transform again, those material conditions in your communities. Good, good. Well, I'll totally agree. <laughs> so um, I know this book just recently came out, but is it too early to talk about any future ideas that you have for books uh, <laughs> that you're able to talk about at least? Yeah. You know, I, um, I'll be honest with you, Brian. I don't like writing so much. <laughs> it's hard work, isn't it? It's both hard work and um, in terms of like my own spiritual disciplines and practices, it's when I write, when I like, that I get closest to like uncovering my own stuff, mm. which means I don't like it mm. and it's necessary. For me <laughs> to do it. um, and so while I don't have any emerging ideas at this time for like a monograph, I do would love to think about editing a volume, a collection of stories from um, particularly young organizers in this time to share out what this experience has been like um, for them over the past five to 10 years. Hmm. And, you know, I said, I don't have an idea for a monograph, but <laughs> um, I lost my grandmother, who's my last living grandparent, in the end of August at the age of 89, and she was my mom's mom, and so um, been really sitting in the, the grief of that for the past several months, and just the grief of, like, being a new mom and not having my grandma and not having mm-hmm. my mom, <laughs> either of my grandmothers, right, um, and the loss of that sort of generational transfer of mothering knowledge, and so my mom was raised in this um, really crazy little town called Carroll, Illinois, which is at the confluence. Southern end of Illinois, yeah. Mississippi and Ohio rivers. And was a town that was torn asunder by integration in the 1960s and 70s. And so I feel like there is within me as part of a a legacy of honoring my mom and honoring my grandmother, something, a collection of essays, something about Carroll that I feel like I really want to write sometime in the the future. uh, and I'm not sure what it looks like just yet. I'm not sure if it's fiction or nonfiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I think there's, there's something about character <laughs> ghost that feels really relevant to me. Um, and and so one day, one day when I don't have a child <laughs> who is constantly <laughs> who's in who's in need of full mama attention, I think I'd love to return to that idea. So what about on the activism front? Do you have anything new, any new programs coming out that um, you want to share with people? Yeah, so we are um, we are running our movement chaplaincy course in partnership with the School of Global Citizenry. It starts in February for folks who are interested. Um, you can go to faithmattersnetwork.org to find out more about that. Um, we're really in a period uh, internally of discernment about what comes next. We got the, the great gift um, last year and continuing this year to focus internally on an internal learning lab, which is about us like taking what we've learned over the past five or six years and like trying to figure out and make sense of it. <laughs> and uh-huh. so 
Um, we have our movement chaplaincy course coming up. We have a couple of other things that we can't quite announce publicly yet that'll be happening this spring. Um, but I'm just really looking forward to the opportunity to continue to learn with my team and share those learnings out into the world. Cool, cool. Well, again, the name of the book is To My Beloveds, Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope. It's from Chalice Press. So you can go to either Chalice Press website or Jen's website at reverendjen.com. So Jennifer, congratulations on the new book. And thank you so much for all the, the work that you share with, with all of us. So we really uh, appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Such a beautiful conversation. Grateful for you. Well, thanks so much, Jen. Yeah, take care.